we are going to look at two stories. So we're going to get one story, then we're going to get another story. This is like two stories for the price of one. And what's interesting about these two stories is that one is hardly ever talked about, and two, the other one's talked about, and the reason why it's talked about is because it's so unusual. We're going to cover the story this morning of when Jesus curses the fig tree, and then when he goes in and clears out the temple. And a lot of times what happens when we read these stories about Jesus is we read the stories about Jesus and we go, that was the story. Then they go, ah, oh, let's throw in this story. And we need, a, we need a story about him feeding a bunch of people. Hey, what about that time you fed the 5,000? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Throw that one in there. And uh, we need a story about him healing a blind person. What about this one over here? Yeah, throw that one in. And what happens is we have all these like disjointed, unconnected stories that Jesus in reality, when you read them in a, in a whole, you see that they are actually really connected. It's interesting when he feeds the 5,000, for instance, when he feeds the 5,000, he sends the disciples out on the boat. They go on the boat, they struggle all night, the waves are coming against them, they're struggling, struggling. Jesus is watching them, and right before dawn, Jesus walks out on the water, was going to pass by them. This is what the scriptures tell us. He was going to pass by. They thought he was a ghost. They screamed out. Jesus said, don't be afraid, and comes to them, gets into the boat, and calms the waters. We go, oh, there's two great stories. Feeding of 5,000, Right? And Jesus walking on the water. Those are two separate stories. But you know what it says at the end of the story with Jesus walking on the water? It says, they did not understand yet the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the multitudes. What? Yeah, why? Because these stories are connected. And so this morning we're going to get two stories. The cursing of the fig tree and the clearing of the temple. The uh, cursing of the fig tree is rarely ever covered, largely because it's very, as we're going to see this morning, it's very confusing. The clearing of the temple is much more covered, and largely because it shows us a different side of Jesus. It's not the Jesus that we're used to. We're used to, if you're left unchecked, we're used to this sort of laissez-faire Jesus, right? Which is just kind of like, hey, it's cool, man. Hey, just follow, just follow God. And if, that's, if, if you want to, if you like, here's the path. But if you don't want to, that's cool too, you know, but you choose. Instead of that, we see Jesus with a, Jesus with a definite plan. And I think here is what we see, this different thing. And with it, when Jesus gets angry, it's memorable. And it's memorable because it doesn't happen all that often. There are people in your life, and maybe you're one of them, that just gets angry all of the time. Like, there's just, like, this constant, like, go-to, like, I'm just angry. And here's, the, here's the, 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 the secret for you, I guess, is that you're angry so often that it's not memorable. It's just your go-to. And some people may even say, what, what's he angry about now? Oh, I don't know. Who knows? What's he all upset about now? I don't know. Like, it's Tuesday, I guess. I don't know. Like, I don't know why he's mad. Why? Because you're mad all the time. Now, when you don't get mad, and there's these other people, right? You, there's people in your life that just, they never get angry. They never get angry. You poke them with a stick. They don't get angry. And then one day, they lose it. And they get angry. And you remember that day. Like, you remember that day? It was raining outside. The car broke down. There was that one time. It stands out. 
And one of the reasons why Jesus' story this morning stands out, I think, is because, because he doesn't get angry like this. Until he does. These two stories go together. And how do we know? Because it's going to start with the fig tree. It's going to go with the clearing of the temple. And it's going to go back to the fig tree. It's this, it's this fig tree sandwich. I guess like a fig newton maybe, but like a fig tree sandwich. It's like we've got the fig tree, what's going on in between, and then the fig tree. And that's what, what it tells us is that these stories belong together. The same way with the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water. Feeding of the 5,000, walks on water, brings back this idea of feeding of the multitudes. They go together. And when we try to understand and interpret them separately, we'll start to lose our way. We'll come up with all these crazy misinterpretations of, of both what Jesus is doing at the temple and then also what's happening with the fig tree. So with that being said, let's jump right in. This is going to start this morning in Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 12. Just to give you a little bit of backstory, Jesus has made his final ascent into to Jerusalem the triumphal entry has already happened earlier in 11, which is basically he came into the city, Hosanna, 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 and now we're here. Verse 12. On the following day, so after the triumphal entry, our Messiah is here, Palm Sunday. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, referring to Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if, if, if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs, for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And so now you can see why it's important that we understand these two stories together, maybe. Because if this is all we ever look at, doesn't Jesus look a little bit vindictive? He goes to a tree. It, was, it had signs of light. It had the, the leaves were there. He goes to it to find figs, but there were no figs. And so he curses the tree. They say, no one will ever eat of this fruit again. Go, whoa. But then Mark noticed this, this thing is that it wasn't even the season for figs. In other words, it wasn't even supposed to have figs. And so now Jesus, it looks like he's vindictive, right? Jesus is now cursing the tree for something it wasn't even supposed to have in the first place. You can see now why this is a confusing story. And what's interesting is this is the only place in the Bible, in the, story, in the, uh, the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus is doing a miracle that really its, it's, 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 it's outcome is going to be destruction. Everything else is restorative healing, blessings. And this is what we expect to come out of the mouth of Jesus, right? Blessings. And what comes out of his mouth here is a curse. And what he says is, may no one ever eat from you again. I think without getting lost in this, I think what Jesus is doing is he's, he's living out a parable. This is what we're going to see here. He gives other parables. He says like, uh, you know, uh, like the, the seed on the path, the good seed that falls on the good soil, the rocky soil. He's talking about it there. He could have lived it out. He could have thrown out seed and stomped it down. Could have thrown out seed on rocky uh, soil. He could have done those things. And I think right here what he's doing is he's, he's walking out and living out a parable. Comes to the tree, and I think this is the point of the tree up to this point. Is that the tree has signs of life. 
It has the green. It's a fig tree. And as Jesus gets closer to it, he doesn't, he's not, by the way, he's not surprised that there's not fig trees. That there's not a fig on the tree, right? It's not this idea where, where he gets closer and he goes, but there's no figs. And the disciples are like, well, Jesus, it's not season for figs. Jesus knows as he's approaching the fig tree that there will not be figs, but that doesn't stop him from looking for them. He sees the signs of life. He's hungry. He would like a fig, but the tree has no figs. Then he goes into the temple. Moving on. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now this is the Jesus we're not used to. Jesus comes in. He sees everything that's going on. He walks into the temple area and sees everything that's going on. And he, it says he stops. He stops people from buying and from selling. He stops the money changers, flips over their tables, and drives them out. Now, often when we hear this story, what do we focus in on? The money changers, right? The money changers. And what was happening with the money changers? Well, the money changers, they would defraud people. The people selling the offerings would charge more because they could. It's like when you go to buy a pack of M&Ms at the airport. It's like, wait, What? Have you guys seen the price everywhere else in the world? Why do they charge more there? Because they know you're not, you, that's, like, if you want M&M's, how bad do you want the M&M's? They got gotcha. you. And so there's some argument, and certainly those things were happening. There was exploitation. People were profiting, charging, upcharging for the sacrifices. So this is the crazy thing. They're charging more for the animals there because you're closer and you know that you need them. And so now they're in some way profiting off of the sins of other people, which is really broken. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I think that Jesus has got an issue with that, but that doesn't seem to be his main issue. And the reason why I know that is because that's what we see. Who does he drive out? He drives out those who sold and those who bought. If it was a problem of exploitation, of profiting off of sin, he would have just driven out those who were selling. But why did he drive out those who were buying too? I think it's largely because something else is happening here. The problem is, as we're going to see here, you have turned the house of God into a marketplace. All the hustle and bustle. And so Jesus walks into the temple. He sees what is, as we're going to see here, to be a house of prayer. And he sees this marketplace. And so he, he, he gets angry. And for you to understand this, I think part of it, you need to understand the temple. The temple was the epicenter of Jewish worship. Everything happened at the temple. People would have to go to the temple to worship. People would go to the temple to sacrifice Sometimes people ask, they want to know, if, uh, if the Jews are still holding to the Old Covenant, why don't they sacrifice animals anymore? I go, that's a great question. The reason why they don't sacrifice animals anymore is because the temple's the only place you can sacrifice an- animals, and right now the temple has been destroyed. 
And so the, the temple was the epicenter of Jewish worship. And within there, you would have these, these different areas. The outside area was called the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles just basically means you're not a Jew. And so that's as far in as the Gentiles could go. Within that was the court of the women. And so if you're a Gentile, you had to stay on that side. But if you were a Jewish woman, you could go in even further. Within that was the court of Israel or the court of the men. The guys could go even further in. And within the court of the men was, 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 was well, really kind of the, the temple itself, but then also what was considered the, the holies of holies. Inside the holies of holies, you know what you find? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is synonymous in the Old Testament with the presence of God. That's why they bring it out to war, because, because when it comes out, that means that God is with us. And so you have the Gentiles, the women, the men, and then the holies of holies, the presence of God. And only one time a year, the high priest, one time a year, the high priest could go into the holies of holies, the presence of God, and make atonements for the sins for the people. Now by this time, this temple here, built by Herod, as far as we understand, is that the Ark of the Covenant was no longer there. In other words, the presence of God is gone, but they're still doing the worship. It's very interesting. And when Jesus comes, he begins to speak about the temple. See, the thing was that the Jewish people took great pride in their temple. Big temple, beautiful temple. We do all the sacrifices, all the worship happens here. But Jesus starts to say some very troubling things about the temple that get him actually in a lot of trouble. One of the things he says about the temple, if you remember in the book of John, he's talking with the woman at the well. She understands that he's a prophet. And what does she say? Her question is, do we have to go to Jerusalem to worship? Or can we worship here at Mount Gerizim? Because it's a lot closer. Or do we have to go all the way to Jerusalem? Remember what Jesus says? Jesus says, well, there's coming a day where that's not going to matter. You can worship anywhere. As long as you worship in spirit and truth. In other words, there's coming a day where location won't matter as much as posture matters. How you pray. How you worship. This is big news. Like, wait, what? We're not going to have to go to Jerusalem to worship? Like, no, no, no. You're going to be able to worship anywhere. As long as it's in spirit and truth. Then he says other things, like he refers to the temple. He says, he says the temple, he goes, you can tear it down and I will rebuild it in three days. And they go, this big, wonderful temple that took, you know, hundreds of years to complete, you could do it in three days. And we know now that Jesus was referring to himself. What? what? You're the temple? Later on in Mark, he says something interesting. This is in Mark chapter 13. Verse 1, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one, to say there will not be left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Isn't it wonderful? Look at these big buildings. Jesus says, there's coming a day where all of this is going to be destroyed. 
God was the one who said, build the temple. And now God is saying, it's being torn down. What they didn't know at this time is that in 70 AD, so roughly about 35, 40 years after this, is that the temple is destroyed. And you know what Rome does? Rome breaks the whole thing down. You know what Rome does? They push all of the stones down. You know what happens? Not one stone is left upon another. In fact, actually, you can go today to Jerusalem. I have been there. I have seen it. And what you can see is the places where the stones have been pushed out and they have fallen down and broken the roads below. Prophecy come true. And so the temple's been destroyed. By the way, now it sits on the Temple Mount is the Dome of the Rock. And so these Jews had great pride in the temple. And when Jesus comes in, he sees what the temple's being used for, and he starts flipping over tables. And this is why we tell the story to our kids, right? Because it's it's this grand story. Jesus gets angry. We think sometimes it validates our own anger. I get angry. Hey, Jesus gets angry. We're in the same boat. Totally different. Totally different. It's a righteous anger. You're like, no, no, no. My my anger is righteous too, right? I know because I feel it. Other people feel unrighteous anger. My anger is righteous anger. Yeah, your anger is probably unrighteous as well. Jesus' righteous anger flips the table. Then he begins to teach. This is 11, verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Now, I understand this to be the the gist of Jesus' teaching. It's not all that he said, but this is the the, the theme of his teaching. He goes, this, this house is supposed to be a house of prayer. But you've turned into a den of robbers. And what he's doing here is he's quoting, I want to take you to one other place this morning in, uh, in Isaiah. Because he's, he's quoting Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah 56, I'm going to read th- uh, 6 through 8. This is what he says. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain, referring to where the temple's at, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And so he's quoting Isaiah here. He's going, there's coming a day where the whole world's going to come here. And the whole world's going to come here and they're going to come here for prayer. And what's interesting is he leaves out the idea of sacrifice. Why? Because he's going to be the sacrifice. So he's the sacrifice. You don't need to come here for sacrifice anymore. So come here for prayer. He goes, but the world has come. This is where this, where this is happening, where he's doing this, is the court of the Gentiles. The world has come to the courts. And what have they found? People praying? No, they found a marketplace. Buying and selling. And even if it was legitimate, 
There wasn't exploitation. It's still the marketplace and the house of prayer. In other words, Jesus is saying, do, yeah, of course you have to do business. Of course you have to buy stuff. Of course you have to exchange money for the temple tax. Of course you have to do those things. But do that out there. Don't do that in here. For this is to be a house of prayer. And people have come for prayer, and what have they found? They found a, they found a target. And that's a shame. And so what do you do? Jesus brings about his version of reform. This is what we see then in verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Hear that. Listen to that. Don't, Don't just blow past that. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. Heard what? Heard his teaching. And they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out from the city. So they were afraid of him. What's going to happen? People are listening to him. He wants to turn the temple into a house of prayer. What does that look like? Here's the thing, though. So the, the chief priests, the scribes, they wanted reform. But here the problem is, is that they, they wanted the reform that they wanted. They didn't want the reform that Jesus was going to bring. And that's why they feared him. Here's the thing is that they wanted the Messiah to come. Jesus is the Messiah. They wanted him to come so that they could be free, so that there could be reformed, and true worship could be established once again in Jerusalem and get these Romans out of here. And so that's what they wanted. They wanted reform on their terms, which was get the Romans out of here. And once the Romans are gone, we can reestablish true worship. But they were afraid of the reform that Jesus was going to bring. And here's the thing, is that Jesus could have kicked out the Romans and there still would not have been true worship at the temple. Before too quickly we get on the, uh, so they want to kill him, just get rid of him. Before we get too quickly on the chief, the chief priests and the scribes, it's exactly what we do, right? We want Jesus to change us, but in ways that we find appropriate. Jesus, come in and like, have your way, but as long as your way is my way, and I deem it as like things that need to change. But that's not how God works. Jesus says, I come in. I do the work that I want to do. I turn over the tables. And they may be tables you don't even like. Which is a lot of times why we're afraid too. We're afraid to let Jesus in because we're afraid that he'll do this very thing. He'll overturn the tables we don't want overturned and disrupt us in a way that we deem inappropriate. Jesus says, my house is a house of prayer. And you turn into a marketplace. They're afraid of him. They want to kill him. Jesus slips out. Verse 20. And they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, 
Have faith in God. He says more than that, but we're going to stop there. So Jesus says, have faith in God. And so this idea that the tree is withered to its roots is totally destroyed. And so they come back to this. Let's think about this. He curses the fig tree. He goes in. There's this crazy experience at the, table, the temple where he's flipping over things, preaching and teaching. This is going to be a house of prayer, not dinner robbers. They slip out. They come. They see the tree the next day. And Peter says, Jesus, Rabbi, it's the uh, tree from yesterday. It's dead. And Jesus' response is, have faith in God. That's a curious response, isn't it? Not the, response you, not the response I would expect. I mean, this idea of have faith in God. I would expect that after the miracle of the feeding of 5,000, right? Whoa! Jesus, we only had a few fish and loaves of bread, and we fed 5,000 men. How'd that happen? Have faith in God. I'd expect that after Jesus walks on the water. Jesus, the storm was crazy. Waves are coming in. You walked on the water. You got on the boat. How'd that happen? Got faith in God. The raising of Lazarus. He's dead. You called out. He's alive now. How'd that happen? Have faith in God. I don't expect it after a tree has died, right? Jesus, you, you cursed the tree, and now the tree is dead. Have faith in God. I think this is a clue to the disciples. This isn't about the tree. It's not about the tree. What does the tree represent? Where did we just come from? This came from the temple. This came from the epicenter of Jerusalem. And it was busy with life like that fig tree had leaves. It was busy. It was hustling. It was bustling. But I'll tell you right now, there was no fruit in that place. Have faith in God. I think in other words, don't have faith in the temple. You have faith in the true temple. See, because what Jesus knows is that not only is he going to die and resurrect, he also knows that this temple is going away. And all the Jews, they had all of their pride. Their faith was in this temple. But Jesus like, that temple is going away. And don't have your faith in the temple. Have your faith in God. And I think that often in our lives, there are places in which we have misplaced our faith. And by the way, I think faith is the belief and trust, the act of belief and trust in the promises of God, that God's going to do what he's going to say he's going to do. I think there's a lot of places in our life where we have misplaced our, our faith, our ultimate faith. And the way you can identify those places in your life is by, by finishing a sentence that I like to finish that says, everything will be okay as long as I don't lose. Everything will be okay as long as I don't lose. What? Everything will be okay with the Jewish faith as long as we don't lose the temple. 
Everything will be okay as long as I don't lose my health. Everything will be okay if, as long as I don't lose my 401k. Everything will be okay as long as I don't lose my children, my spouse. Everything will be okay as long as I don't lose my job, my house, my, my funding for school. Everything will be okay. How you finish that sentence will tell you where you have misplaced your faith. And what Jesus says is that if your faith is in the temple, the faith is misplaced. Because the temple is going away. All of the nations were going to come for prayer, but the temple is going to go away. And now, so what happens with prayer now? And that's exactly what he says next. Verse 23, about prayer. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. Some of your translations may say, believe that you are receiving it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And so then he gives us this, teaching on prayer, about real prayer. He says two things about prayer, two key elements about prayer, faith and forgiveness, right? Faith, believe that it will happen. There's a connection between faith and prayer. And unfortunately, this verse here, it's been grossly misapplied many of times, misinterpreted and misapplied many of times, this idea that what Jesus is saying, I think he's speaking in hyperbole here. He's saying, Whoever has enough faith can say to this mountain, you go into the sea. And if you believe it and receive it as being true, it will happen. So if you pray that the mountain go into the sea and it doesn't happen, it's because you didn't believe. Name it. This is what I want. Claim it. I receive it to be true. Scriptural. It's right here. Jesus said it. And so this leaves us in a place, if we believe that, that whenever unanswered prayers come our way, that it's because we lack faith. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying here. And maybe we could draw those conclusions if this is the only place in which we see prayer taught on, but it's not. We saw it in 1 John, when I preached through 1 John, this idea that that God answers the prayers according to his will. In other words, God's not going to give us something that would bring us harm in that sense. According to his will. And so people use this verse all the time. You know what? You need a million dollars? Pray for it. Name it. I need a million dollars. Claim it. Go start spending like you have it. Don't do that. When the bank calls, like, oh, that, that's between <laughs> gold and one. That's between you and Jesus. So you, you figure that out. No, nope, they're going to figure it out between the two of you. Name and claim it. What Jesus is saying here is that there's a connection between prayer and faith. 
Faith is the belief and the trust in the promises of God. It's the act of belief and trust in the promises of God. And often in prayer is calling God on those promises. God, you said you would. God, would you please? And then God answers those prayers in connection with his will. The scriptures also tell us that when we don't know what we're praying, the Spirit, the spirit prays forth. I think the Spirit corrects us. So when we're praying like, God, I just need a million dollars, the Spirit's there going like, well, actually, no, it's not a million dollars because I could give you a million dollars and you'd still be a train wreck. What you need is peace. And you think the million dollars will bring you peace. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to answer your prayer for the million dollars in giving you peace. But unanswered prayers aren't just because you lack faith. Unanswered prayers may be because they don't line up with the will of God. And that's okay. You know the place where we see this, the, the clearest, the loudest it's actually in a place that is about six days away. Well, less than that. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does Jesus pray? He knows what's about to come, and what does he say? Lord, if it's your will, take this, take this cup away from me. I don't want it. Take it away. If there's another way, let's do that. But in the end, your will be done. There was an answer to that prayer, by the way. It was, no, I won't. Was that because Jesus lacked faith? No. No, it was because the will of the Father was to put the Son on the cross. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying there's a connection between faith and prayer. God has made promises. We pray that will, those promises. And by the way, when we stop praying, it's because we stop believing that God can do something. You know those places? The prayer goes unanswered long enough that you think to yourself, well, what, what is the difference does it make? Why would I keep on praying? I love what Jesus says here. You keep on praying and you pray it as if you received it. God, thank you for the peace you are about to give me. God, thank you for the faithfulness that you have still yet to show me. He says, pray like that. And it's that other idea of forgiveness. He says, if you're praying, the way that you stand with other people matters. And a lot of times what you want is you want forgiveness from the Father without giving forgiveness to your brother. You want forgiveness from here, but you're not willing to give forgiveness here. And Jesus keeps on saying, there's a connection between this and there's a connection between this and this. And so with the fig tree, what he's, he's, he's saying with the fig tree is that the, the, nobody's going to come to the temple anymore for these things. It's done. Maybe there's you know, the, a third temple built, but that's a whole other sermon. What Jesus is saying is that the world has come here for prayer and now we're going to go out there and bring prayer. That the community of God, God's community should not be a marketplace. 
but the community of God should be known as individually and corporately as calling out to him in prayer. You know, there's a lot of talk today about what churches can do for you. Oh, you go to that church. They'll do all this for you. This church is known for that. My prayer like, go to church, be a better person. That's not even my prayer for you. I mean, I, better person, great. Because is that what we want? Do we want to be a community of moralists? I'll tell you, that, that church right there, they won't steal from you. That church right there, those people right there, they're not going to lie to you. Well, those are good things. That's not what I want, though. I want people to come here. And I want you to go out there. And I want us to be known as people who call on God. You know those people? Oh, yeah. Man, they trust Jesus a lot. <laughs> they trust Jesus. It gets worse for them. They continue to trust Jesus. I love that about them. Those people you need prayer, those are the people you talk to because they believe that God is going to act and they call on him until he does. And so for you, I've been thinking maybe there's a place in which you personally have given up on prayer because you don't see it working. I love that. Prayer. I tried that one time. <laughs> I tried that. It didn't work. I went to the doctor. That didn't work. I tried this one vitamin. It didn't work. I tried this medication. It didn't work. So then I'm like, I don't know. What the heck? I'll try prayer. And it didn't work either. And so I stopped them all. I was like, wait, what? The first start with prayer and then never end with prayer. And what you're doing in that is that you're, you're calling on God. You're calling on God to do what he says he'll do. By the way, if all we ever do is use prayer to get things from God. God, I'm going to pray so I get the things I need. I go, part of the problem is we, we do exactly what's happened at the temple. We turn the place of prayer into a marketplace. You know what he said in Isaiah about that? This should be a house of prayer. And it's now a den of robbers. May you persevere in your prayer. May you receive it as true according to the will of God. May you pray in such a way that it's, 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 it's happening. God, the peace is on the way. The love is on the way. The gentleness on the way. The kindness on the way. The forgiveness on the way. And may we be, as a church, both individually and corporately, being known as people who have faith in Jesus and call on him in prayer. Let's pray. Maybe you're here this morning and you have given up on the prayer because you don't see it working. So what I want to do to you right now is I want to encourage you right now in this moment. I want you to, to, to pray that prayer again, maybe afresh, anew. 
Ask God to give the very thing that you have given up on. God, we thank you for all that you do. We thank you that you are a faithful God. who in the end will, will do everything that you have promised. There will be no promise unfulfilled. The promises you have made to us, the promises you have made to us as a people, may we as a church individually and corporately be a house of prayer, a place of faith, not a place where we're just, we're just turning out more moral people who know how to behave in society. May we be a people individually and corporately that increasingly so are calling on you, calling on your promises, building our life on your promises, acting on your promises in expectation of their fulfillment. And may when you come to us, may you not just see the signs of life, but may you see the fruit of life. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.